are about to get a look through law enforcement's eyes. The danger. Shots fired, shots fired. The tragedy. A baby in the car too. And the emotional consequences. That is a life-changing experience. An NBC10 investigation is looking at the alarming consequences of being a cop. For months, NBC-owned television stations worked with the Fraternal Order of Police, surveying thousands of officers about their mental health. Investigative reporter Mitch Blocker has the results. These guys might be armed or at least have guns in our houses. Philly Police Sergeant Andrew Callahan is getting ready to serve a warrant. If somebody gets hurt, put him in the car in the front. It's work that almost cost him his life. They call it a near-death experience. 25 years later, he can't forget firing his gun to defend himself. A lot of cops walk around, and I was one of them, saying, but it's not going to happen to me. He says he won't forget his reaction. Sleepless nights and a depression, he says, led to a post-traumatic stress diagnosis. All of a sudden, I started to have problems, and I didn't know what it was. I just literally thought I was cracking up. He's not alone. Critical stress is part of police work. In Philly, cops aren't only policing. They're taking crime victims to the hospital and burying friends and colleagues all too often. I knew then it was time for me to step down because I just couldn't bury another police officer. Philadelphia's former police commissioner, Charles Ramsey, retired when a fifth officer in nine months died under his command. When you lose that many people in that short a period of time, you get this sense of it's just not safe out there. You know, your, your life is constantly at risk. Responding to trauma creates trauma. That's according to nearly 8,000 police from all over the country, nearly 500 of them from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. 78% told us they've experienced critical stress on the job. 68% say that stress led to unresolved emotional issues. 16% told us they thought of suicide. They take that same baggage home that I take home, and I'm not doing their job 24-7. Jason Dawkins grew up in the North Philly neighborhood he now represents. The state representative walked us through his district in the last six months, home to seven homicides, 22 rapes, and 138 aggravated assaults. I want to make sure that there's some safeguards that's put in place for our community and for our office. So he's introducing a bill requiring all Pennsylvania law enforcement to get a mental health screening every two years. But right now, it does not include money for treatment. How do you do it without money? So I think uh, there's, there's nothing that can really happen without money these days when we're talking about the legislature. I think things that are important we find money for, and I think our officers are worth the investment. Okay, thanks. Let me know if he goes back in the house with it. You'll get no argument from this veteran cop. His experience inspired him to go back to school. He's now a certified employee assistance professional and counsels hundreds of police officers every year. No cop should ever have to walk alone again. Now, one of the hardest parts of this reporting was getting police officers to talk about their mental health. 90% of the officers surveyed told us that there's a stigma that prevents them from talking about mental health. Statistically speaking, there is a real need for treatment. Last year across the United States, 140 police officers committed suicide. Live in the newsroom for the investigators, I'm Mitch Blocker, NBC 10 News. Hey, we want to welcome everybody to another episode of You and the Law podcast show. I want to thank you for taking the time to tune in and join us tonight. We've got a, a special guest on the show. Uh, before we get to our special guest, I need to introduce who I am. I'm Virgil Green, one of the co-hosts of the show. And uh, as always, the dude who does not have on a hat tonight, but still got the beard, but he goes by the name of uh, goes by the name of Chief Swaggy One. How you doing, brother? What's going on, man? How you doing? Kerry. Yes, look, sir. You look extremely handsome and very professional and uh diplomatic. Well, thank you. Well, Chief, what, 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 Chief, why don't you introduce our, our uh, distinguished guest we got tonight? Well, I will tell you that uh, when you talk about crisis intervention training and peer support, this is probably one of the um, best, one of the top subject matter experts, not just in the state of Oklahoma, but I would think in the nation. Um, I've, I've seen Carrie firsthand work with our homeless population and um, uh, put together a program, a uh, community program where we, um, um, our homeless community was provided um, 
means to get driver's license, social security cards, uh, veterans benefits, uh, medical treatment, even for their, their animals getting veterinary treatment. But the main thing is Carrie um, is a certified uh, CIT. Uh, he is teaches it. Uh, he lives it. Uh, he has um, probably saved uh, quite a few officers uh, that have gone through some serious, serious stress. So I'm going to let Kerry tell you a little bit more about himself, but I but recently promoted the chief deputy of um, Cleveland County. Uh, retired after 20, how many total years in law enforcement and municipal? Uh, 26 years. 26 years. Uh, in the last 20, I believe, 2021 was with the city of Norman. Left there as a, mm-hmm. I had the um, pleasure of promoting Kerry. And uh, Kerry since retired, and he's the chief deputy over detention for Cleveland County. So, my friend, good to see you, and uh, thank you for being on the on the podcast. Chief, thank you, Chief Green. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, forgive my voice. Uh, welcome to springtime in Oklahoma. Uh, <laughs> it's yesterday was uh, 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 worse than it is today, and Chief Humphrey kept telling me I only had one hour, one hour, one hour. Yeah, he forgot that. And uh, today probably I'll help. I'll stick to that. Um, (laughs) um, I happened and I started my law enforcement career in 1988 in Yukon, Oklahoma, uh, and was there for five years and decided to to test the uh, private sector and was there for nine years and uh, had to get back into it. So at age 38, I went through the academy in Norman uh, and started in 02 and uh, um, when, when it came out, went to patrol. Uh, and uh, in 2010, after I'd gone to, I was, I was in the National Guard. I retired as Lieutenant Colonel and uh, made a trip to Iraq and had a determined, I determined that there's a lot of things that returning veterans didn't, you know, that I didn't see, at least in my local community. And so I went to my, my, my lieutenant and he said, well, why don't you put something together? Next thing I know, I'm going to CIT and, and, and then two years later, I went to CIT in 2010 and 2012, I was asked to come on the instructor team for the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health to teach CIT to officers all over the state. And I've done that quite a bit ever since. And it's been uh, one of the highlights of my career is working with this. If you'd have told me when I started law enforcement that I was going to do this, I thought my law enforcement career was I was going to drive fast and solve crimes in 30 minutes or less. And uh, that's not exactly how it happened. Uh, and, uh, and I have found that being uh, doing this kind of work and working with this population has been the, the most satisfying part of my career. Um, I, did, uh, I did get a chance, and Chief Humphrey – uh, promoted me in, in 2013 and, uh, in 2017, I, uh, took over the, uh, community policing and I was the community outreach coordinator and worked with a wonderful team with the city of Norman and with, uh, with different providers all over town. And we, we talked with the homeless and, uh, um, and I couldn't have done it without, uh, uh, without the, the city homeless coordinator who, uh, a civilian position that helped us out. And do uh, what? Michelle Evans, amazing. Oh yeah, Michelle Evans, she's a wonderful lady. And we we dropped through the backwoods all over Norman. You wouldn't think a town of one hundred twenty eight thousand people had that many backwoods, but they do. And uh, we we determined that uh, uh, the one thing that people needed was a way to live. How do you how do you go out when nobody can knows who you are? And so working with Michelle and working with some great people who are willing to take a chance and kind of stretch out their limitations, we were able to, uh, to, to uh, provide uh, services to our homeless expos and get services to them. They could come in with nothing and leave with a birth certificate in hand, driver's license, social security card ordered. Uh, and if you put those three things together, that's an I-9. You can go get a job. Uh, we also hooked them up with housing. 
and tried to get them into treatment if they needed it. So kind of a one-stop shop that uh, we, we, we had to do, you know, a lot of times on the fly, but uh, we were able to get a lot of stuff done and uh, it kind of mirrored what's been going on all over the United States. Um, but uh, again, this has been, I, I left there, I left Norman in, uh, uh, in January and uh, I worked for Cleveland County. Uh, not only my chief detention officer, I'm also the CIT commander. So I'm doing a lot of the same things as far as the mental health side for Sheriff Amoson that I did with uh, with uh, the police department. Great. Well, for those who are just now tuning into the podcast show, uh, tonight's topic is mental illness in our communities and policing. And uh, we got a special guest on the show tonight, uh, Corey Bryant, uh, who is an expert in. Very bright. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that, that Chief is, is good about doing is 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 correcting me when I when I you know There's say no the wrong you're, word. You're, you're not the only one he corrects if you do it wrong, trust me, Chief. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, so and then we gotta correct him. Very oh, no, I can't do that because I'm not that perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Terry, yeah. let, me, uh, let me ask you a question, man. You know, we, we want to talk about this topic because uh, in law enforcement, that's a, that's a taboo. It is something that, you know, we, we always talk about mental illness in the community. I mean, that's, that's you know, and um, as you know, CIT was started here in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, we've got it. We've got it in the community. We've got it taken mm -hmm. care of. I think we have it tight in the in our communities. Uh, departments are deploying more reasons, especially officers trained in crisis intervention. It's really one of the, the other than firearms training and um, and uh, defensive tactics. It's one of the mandatory. And correct me if I'm wrong. It's one of the few mandatory trainings or uh, continuing ed that we are. We're mandated to take based on the fact that we have so many um, of our citizens in our communities that suffer from mental illness. Mm -hmm. But for the first time in the history of the nation in 2015, uh, President Obama recognized that uh, mental illness was affecting. And this was, you know, with all the protests and things that were going on and officers working 14 days straight. Uh, to deal with the protests, he realized that there was a realization that there was a problem in law enforcement with mental illness. And as you know, one of the six pillars of 21st century policing is uh, officer wellness. Mm -hmm. So, Carrie, what, you know, talk a little bit about peer support, um, you know, in internal resources for uh, law enforcement and, and why that's important and what's the most difficult part of that? Well, the most difficult part is to, is to recognize. Um, I've got a 31 year military career. I've got a 26 year law enforcement career. And early on in my career, as I was learning, you just kind of kept everything inside. Uh, I remember the first at age 24, 25 years old, the first fatality I went on, uh, it was a 14 year old, a 14 year old boy. And so I remember how that made me feel, but you didn't talk about that. You just kept that inside. I mean, that was 30 something years ago. And I think as we've moved forward and as we understand more about this thing that we call the human condition, that we understand more about the brain and the mind. And we understand how this trauma affects particularly younger officers who may be still in that brain development stage. We know in our training that the human brain is developing until uh, about 27, 28 years old. So when some of these things that younger officers go through and that trauma that's pounded into it is not much different than the trauma that the military has learned in the, the, the different wars. And we've, we've taken those lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan, and we've now applied it to the streets and to help our officers and to, and, and to help each other. In, in a lot of the same ways, 
because the stigma is, is somewhat the same. And so I think, you know, Norman has, has led the way in peer support and uh, there's some, some fantastic people uh, that work peer support in Norman, Cleveland County, Highway Patrol, the different places. Most peer support uh, PSRs are trained in CIT, but not all CIT go into peer support. That's a, that's a separate specialty, but they use the elements of CIT when we're dealing with crisis because that's just it. It's a crisis. And uh, so we have to understand what this is like. We have to understand what this person is going through, even when that person doesn't want to say. But what I love now is that we're teaching officer wellness from the very beginning, from the first day of the academy. And so now we have officers who are more willing to say, I think I need to get some help with this. And I think uh, to the listeners, they, they, uh, one of the state statutes, Carrie, please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, that in order, if you're going to have a peer support, uh, it must be confidential. And yes. even as chief, um, even if, if I recommended someone to peer support, uh, mm-hmm. I could not find, I, I was unable and did not want to know what those discussions were. Um, and because it, because police officers don't trust. And so once you, even if you provide that resource and they even feel like you're probing or that you're going to try to find out or they're going to use that against them at some point, they're not going to participate in the program. But the confidentiality is really great, with the exception of if they tell you they committed a crime. That's, that's right, right. They, that's so, so when when I was a young well, when I was a younger lieutenant, I was never really young. Um, I, uh, I I had a, a a young officer that I referred to peer support, and being that always wanting to follow up to make sure everything's okay. I asked about that and I was told very politely, but succinctly that no, we're not telling you anything. Uh, you've, you've referred and we appreciate your concern, but we're not even going to acknowledge that this person is in peer support because we want to maintain that confidentiality. And I, I, I know a number of peer support officers and they are, as serious as I am about CIT and working with mental health in the community, they are as serious about working PSR and mental health within their agencies. And they also go out and they help other agencies because smaller agencies will get into critical incidents that need that kind of support. And uh, so they, uh, they, they, they go out. I know the Oklahoma Highway Patrol goes out and helps smaller agencies. I know Norman, when I was there, they would go out. So it's very much a community outside of your individual agencies. Well, you know, uh, and I'm pretty sure you know that Oklahoma City has a uh, pretty well-established mm-hmm. peer support group. Uh, and now it's being made up of, you know, uh, even those who retire from Oklahoma City, uh, they are joining the peer support uh, group. And uh, and so, I mean, they're responding to incidents where officers have been involved with, uh, you know, some type of traumatic incident. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to see agencies taking um, a very proactive stance on um uh, uh, making sure that that officers wellness is 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 a priority mm-hmm. so and and this this really i mean i can I, I i'm looking at it from both the civilian side and law enforcement and when i was in the military uh and when i went on deployment and understanding uh what deployment was like and, and what you were going to be facing when you came back and i was fortunate enough to be part of the, the very first uh, Yellow Ribbon reintegration um, back in 2009. That has become standard for the military. And so I think because a lot of the trauma that military and law enforcement experience can be shared, uh, some of it's different, but, it, but it's still trauma. And so 
Uh, I think you see you, you see that you see a lot of people, particularly in the National Guard and the Reserve, who are bringing that into law enforcement, and 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 I like that. that, that that's that's really been very successful. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that was that was mentioned on the report that I played at the opening of the show uh, toward the end of it was that I want to say 75 or 90 percent of police officers don't uh, don't say anything when they when they need need help. And and so uh, and then, you you know, you you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen a a very high increase in officers uh, suicide. And so, uh, you know, what, how do you, um, how do you encourage officers to seek that, uh, that additional support? Communication, just, just having that communication, you may not, you, you can't fix it, but you can listen. And by listening and opening up the line of communication, and sometimes, and, and one of the things that we teach in CIT and, and PSR as well is in crisis communication, sometimes you just have to shut up and listen and yeah. let them talk, let them go at their own speed. You're not going to drag them into treatment unless, obviously, they're going to hurt themselves and you have to. But uh, you have to listen, and active listening is the key. And I think training our officers in active listening has not only helped them in the street, it's also helped them in interpersonal communications within their agencies. Yeah. Well, me, you know, another, go ahead. Let me, let me say this, Carrie, and, and I think the chief sets the tone. And not only does the chief set the tone, it, it's very, very, you have to be very, very careful of who participates in peer support. Who are your, who, who are your, um, your liaisons? Uh, I like to call them liaisons. Who are you? Who are liaisons? And and how structured the program? No, that's going to be the, the key. Um, and, and with Norman, we with Norman and with all the other agencies, you have to go through a selection process. You don't just show up and say, "I want to be a PSR uh, person." You have to apply. You have to go through the board. You have to go, and these these boards and these interviews are by PSRs to see if they, if you have the temperament to do that and not everybody does. Um, and so that's very important that you, and, and that doesn't mean they're bad officers. They can be very good officers. They could care, but they may not have the right temperament. That might not be the specialty that they need to do, but they can certainly listen and everybody needs to care. And you got officers that can't hold water. They'll, they'll tell, um, the, the substance of those, those conversations that someone comes to them in confidentiality with. Now, you know, that's just, you know, that's those are the things that, that just happen. Yeah. Hey, I want to ask you this question since you're a CIT instructor. Have mm-hmm. you ever, <clears throat> you know, we all know officers who want to just say, hey, this looks good on, on, on paper. I got all these mm-hmm. certificates. Have you ever been uh, in a situation where you just don't really see that this person is, and I know it's not for you all to decide because the agency is sending that that officer to that training, but have you ever seen where that person isn't there for the right reasons? Yes. I think with, I think with any training that you have, you're going to find officers that aren't there for the right reasons. Um, and but, but I think, you know, mental health is something a little bit different mm-hmm. because you know, you, you go and you say, hey, I went to this 40-hour CIT training. You got the little CIT epaulets. Mm-hmm. Everybody looks at you and think, oh, man, what is that? And, and you're some expert now. Right. Uh, versus having somebody who genuinely under, understood what, they, what that training was about, how they can assist somebody in, mm-hmm. in a crisis situation. I, I have seen that, and, and I've seen it go two ways, Chief. Um, obviously the guy that comes in, Hey, I can get 40 hours out of this and Hey, I got 40 hours of training and I got my, my two hours mental health for the year. Yeah. But what I've seen and what, what really gives me a sense of success is that guy that comes in on the day one and you're going, Oh no, I didn't know what. And then by day five, 
he is he is just turned completely around mm-hmm. and it never fails every class that I've taught I'll have one officer at least come up to me and say six weeks ago I'd have taken that kind of jail instead of the mental health and yeah. so it's when you change that perception and sometimes the perception doesn't change until they leave you and they get on the street and they see it for themselves but you've planted the seed and all you yeah. can do is plant the seed. Sometimes the apple tree grows and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Well, you know, Keith, I was telling you before we started the podcast that when I was a chief in Spencer, I had several officers who attended a CIT training that he was at down in Powell's Valley. And at the end of the week, that officer came back and was just, he, he was just like, man, this is some of the best training that I have been to. And he, he understood it. He got it. And he put together, I asked everybody, when you go to a training, put together a presentation about that training. And he put together a presentation that let me know that he got something out of it. Just it, It wasn't just sitting there for 40 hours. He really understood the impact of how he could utilize that training in the field. You guys know, I said earlier about it depends on how the program is developed, how the program looks uh, so so when I when I first went to uh, Arlington and the it was pretty much like I just want to be a you know you had officers in peer support it was called peer support I'm not sorry I'm sorry it was called um yeah peer support uh, but it was I can't remember the formalized name for it but um, the problem that they had in Arlington and everybody who's from Arlington everybody listening the program was a, um, how do you say it? It was a used to, you had officers consoling widows of officers who had fallen, and the next thing you know, they were marrying those widows. I mean, seriously, that's that's not, I mean, I, that can easily be uh, confirmed. And so I remember Chief Bowman, um, it pretty much the, the peer support program became a, a joke in Arlington. And that was the brother the joke. Hey man, you know, if I go down the line of duty, keep peer support from my, my you know, my spouse. I mean, seriously, that was the joke. And Chief Bowman came and said, hey, we really need a formalized program. And that's the first time I heard of CISM, Crisis, Interman- Crisis Intervention Stress Management. And um, they, they built a program where, where there was a, a division commander and then there was a uh, there was a division commander a sector commander and then you had sergeants and then you had officers so bottom line is that there was no officer that would go out on a scene alone they had to go out in partners and it was a notification to, to that commander down to that division command that division commander that, that uh, B commander sergeant and then so it ended up working out really Really well um, for the department because they put a lot of money into it. That's the thing. Um, you have to be willing to put the resources into the program. I will tell you, as being a member of the honor guard and carrying bodies, you know, carrying the bodies of our fallen brothers and sisters, um, that, that takes a toll. Uh, mm-hmm. Being involved in a deadly force situation, uh, that takes a toll. Uh, and especially a deadly force situation that is falls on your uh, on your wife's birthday. That takes a toll. Uh, losing an officer in the line of death, you know, take that takes a toll. And I'll tell you, man, it um, peer support saved me uh, back in 2010 when I uh, lost an officer. And you know, I'm worried about everybody else, my officers, the family, and everything else, and, and not take in time for myself and I finally took some time for myself and it was one of the best things that ever that ever happened to me and I'll give you another example because uh, this is very dear to my heart Carrie you know you and I for some reason from day one we bonded <laughs> uh, and and that was one of the first things I wanted to know man what's 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 with Norman's peer support hey what's going but anyway when I um upon my retirement um from Little Rock um, I found it was very, it was the right time for me to open up, 
regarding uh, my uh, mental illness. And you know, my wife at one point said, because I told her, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something one day. It's got to be the right time. And I felt that that was the right time. And, you know, we talked earlier about how people take that and use it against you. And sure enough, you know, it's on the blog. The chief is crazy, either this, that, and the other, which that's fine. If that's what you believe, that's fine. But what I will say, you would, you probably wouldn't care, but I was impressed with the number of officers who, uh, not just in uh, Little Rock, but from Norman and other other areas and some of my peers who opened up and, and asked me about, you know, how do you deal with it? They were, they were, they were suffering from, from mental illness. And so that's one of the things that people are afraid of, that people will make fun of them. Mm-hmm. Um, want to interfere with your career. That's not the case. Um, you you got to get some help. Uh, you got to get some help and it's okay. Uh, you don't even have to let anybody know you're getting, uh, receiving assistance. But, but, you know, to anyone who's listening out there, you have to, you have to get help. Whether in, in you know, and in, in Carrie, if I may, just kind of talk a little bit about what happens when peer support is not enough. Uh, what happens at that point for that officer? You know, I mean, the um, officers that are involved in peer support are not licensed counselors. They're not social workers. They're not psychologists, psychiatrists. So what happens when it gets to the point this officer has to be um, put on some form of leave because something's just not, not right? Kind of walk us through that. So, so most of the agencies have <clears throat> access to licensed mental health professionals and they these these mental health professionals and the PSR have those contacts and they train with these mental health professionals and then they set those up in 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 confidential sessions uh, to to allow that officer to do what he needs to do and so PSR will never say hey I'm I'm licensed in this like they're not but they they direct they 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 oversee and they direct that officer. To, for the officer to get the help that they need. And uh, I've, I've talked to officers in the past who have used PSR and they continue to go to that therapist even after they, uh, after they, they, they come back on duty. And so one thing we have to understand on stigma is, and it's stigma, but when we teach CIT, we tell the, the students one in four excuse me, in, in the United States suffers from some sort of mental illness and law enforcement is just a microcosm of the public at large. And so there are officers out there right now, I would submit to you that do uh, seek mental health treatment. They do, they, they may be on medications and they, they, they perform their job and they, they live their life and it's very important and we, we, we always underestimate the cumulative effects of trauma. And uh, Chief, I, I, I think you probably remember back when we were kids, uh, the green stamp books, going to the green stamp store. I was just talking about and, Yeah, he, he, he definitely remembers that because that's you know, his age. <laughs> well, and I remember that too. You go to the supermarket, you get the green stamps, you put it in the book. When you fill the book up, you put it aside, you get so many books, and you can go get a toaster. Well, yeah. that's when uh, his family got their clothes and their furniture. <laughs> and hey. so I want, I want you to think of cumulative trauma as, um, and as, as, uh, as a green stamp book. And so you, you, all that stuff goes in, you start your day, your unit won't start. You have to get a unit you don't like, and your sergeant's ragging on you about one thing or another. And now that dang chief, he's sending out more emails all the time and, and, and it just keeps putting green stamp books, green stamp books, green stamp books. And then when you when when you get to that last page in the book, that's the guy that you stop on a traffic stop for doing 37 over. And he steps out of his car and screams, what the heck do you want? And probably not in that vernacular. And then the next thing you know, you're writing a blue team to the chief because you probably had a use of force. And so 
that 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 all piles up and and so if you don't have a way to vent out uh, and, and and reduce the, the the level then that's just going that's just cumulative trauma that just adds to it now you add um um the uh the the young officers who are under the age of 27 28 in a developing brain and so that adds to it as well so there's a lot of complicated issues going on with that yeah well hey guys we got a a, a question in the chat room uh but i've got a video that i want to show uh because i think it, it kind of will uh we'll have a conversation about how females respond uh so if you're just now tuning into the podcast show uh, tonight's uh, topic is uh, mental illness in our communities and policing. And uh, so if you guys got any questions uh, or any comments, uh, please uh, ask your questions in the chat and we'll definitely get to them. A Cincinnati police officer was alone in her patrol car in uniform on duty in April. A black high schooler apparently flipped her off, and that's when a racial slur she thought she uttered to herself in private was caught on body cam, sparking public outrage and calls for accountability. It's our Newsy Tonight Focus. Jake Rowell has a story. The city manager in a statement said that the body camera footage is disturbing. Officer Rose Valentino called it an isolated incident, her using a racial slur while on duty. It's April 5th. Officer Rose Valentino is pulling into CPD District 3. Several cars are parked to pick up students at Western Hills University High School. Officer Valentino activated her lights and siren to get the drivers to move. You gotta move. Ridiculous. Is she gonna just sit there? A black teen who was leaving school raised his middle finger at Officer Valentino, which set Valentino off. Several seconds pass. Valentino then uses a racial slur under her breath. We dug into Officer Valentino's personnel file. She's a 14-year veteran with CPD. Her performance report shows she consistently meets or exceeds standards for patrolling. She trains officers who recently graduated from the academy. Her supervisors say she's dedicated and a hardworking beat officer, adding she comes to work with a positive, motivated attitude, which is appreciated, and that she does great work. She's been reprimanded in the past for not turning on her body camera multiple times. And this is not the first time Officer Valentino has been on the city's radar for an issue involving race. In November 2018, she was one of three police officers involved in a lawsuit where Jerry Isham, a realtor, was showing a home to Anthony Edwards. Both are black. Court docs show she escalated the situation by aiming her gun at the two men and then putting them in handcuffs. The city settled the case for $151,000. And in March 2020, while off duty, she pushed and punched two family members and used an umbrella to damage a car. She was convicted by plea of disorderly conduct and was referred to a behavioral health center for anger management. Fast forward to the April 5th incident. According to the internal report, Officer Valentino acknowledged her statements weren't appropriate and that she was surprised the racial slur came out and that it didn't represent who she was as an officer or how she felt about African-Americans. She claimed to have been desensitized to racially offensive language by music and hearing people talk on the street. In that report, she said her job is having a negative impact on her mental health, something she's since sought help for. It's Jake Rowell reporting there. Officer Valentino will have a department-level hearing in the coming weeks. A Cincinnati Police Department captain is going to hear both sides, then write a recommendation to the interim police chief. If the chief wants Valentino suspended, demoted, or fired, the city manager has to sign off. Hey, guys, that was an interesting video. Uh, because the, the question we have in the chat room is that uh, Pam asks, are the female officers more willing to use this service? Are they uh, pretty guarded as well? And the one thing that stuck out with me in, in that uh, video was that she said that, you know, this was related to, to seeking some mental health. 
And, and so, but, it, and she was seeking that, that, that type of, you know, uh, treatment. And, and so how, how do you, you, you're using your mental health uh, problems and you're using racial slurs uh, and, and none of that made any sense to me. I don't know what you guys think about it, but the fact that uh, she uh, uh, has indeed even to see where she had been charged uh, for uh, a violent act with some family members. Go ahead, Carrie. I, I'll, I'll let you answer, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna chime in. Well, I just looking at that, and I haven't seen this particular story, but uh, I would say, you know, when she showed up there, her green stamp book got full. I mean, <laughs> she, she, she let off, and that's exactly what happens if you don't keep that in check, uh, and so. I think a lot of it also goes to culture. Uh, is this the culture of the agency? And and, and I find that, uh, you know, yes, it could be civilian culture as well, but uh, is this something that's a culture in the agency? And is this something um, that other officers may be doing? I, I don't know. There's nothing to indicate one way or the other, but, uh, and, and it could be, you know, she's obviously got issues at home that she's been working on. And so, and that comes out and keep in mind, you know, what I said before that law enforcement is just a microcosm of society in general. And so if you expect everybody that puts on a badge to be this, this perfect angel 24 seven, you know, well, chief Humphrey would be, but I, you know, most other people wouldn't be, okay. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but we, but we do have that. We do, we do have anger and yes, officers have anger. Officers have emotion. They, 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 they cry at scenes where children have died. And so they're going to have emotions based on, on what crisis that they're in. And when which we talk healthy. about the, which is, uh, yes. And when we talk about crisis, is is an event that produces an emotional, mental, physical, or behavioral distress or a problem. And as a result, they lose their ability to use their problem-solving and coping skills. And in, in that scene where she used the unfortunate racial slurs, would you say that she may have lost that coping ability and then went back to something from her past? You know, to to pick to piggyback on on Pam's question, um, it's kind of hard to say. I, I do know that there are some females that are a little bit resistant, uh, and I don't want to say more so than males, but they they are resistant because they are afraid that there's that there's that perception that females are soft, that they are weak, that they're emotional. And so there are those that are hesitant to seek uh, any type of, um, I don't like to say counseling, but any kind of uh, peer support uh, because they, they have, remember I said earlier, they're afraid that it'll get out. Um, they, are, they're, they are afraid that they will look weak, uh, that they can't handle their emotions. Uh, that's just, you know, that's just, that's, that's, the nature of the beast, you know, you all have to realize too, females did not, uh, throughout the nation, didn't hit patrol until the early uh, 70s. Uh, you yeah. had female officers, but they were only allowed to work desk duties and write tickets. And so, you know, even 50 years later, there's, there's still that, I mean, I know guys that don't even want females to be officers. Uh, they don't think that this is a, uh, uh, position they're cut out for. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, that, that was hesitant. But that's why your your peer support group has to be very diverse. It has to be diverse. Carrie, you and I have talked about this. You, you've got to have, you've got to have your females, males, uh, LGBTQ community, um, the ethnicity, various ethnic groups help, religions, help 
Uh, you've got to have it because there are people that say that when they find out somebody's peer support, I'm not going to him. Well, when when it comes to that point, you can't make someone go to them. So you have to have a diverse program to where people have they feel comfortable with talking to individuals. It may not it may not be someone who looks like them, but it might be someone that might have been in the military or someone who's a parent. You know, it just depends. So it's just, uh, you know, and, 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 and some will fall back on, well, I'm under stress and I get it. Um, stress can um, cause some emotional, but I know some people some officers <clears throat> that realized they were about to get in trouble <laughs> and they went on leave, Carrie, you know, <laughs> and they went yeah. on leave uh, because, you know, as long as someone's on leave, on leave, as far as, um, you know, on admin leave regarding peer Something support, maybe yeah. there's, you and so you'll, you'll have those individuals that will exhaust all their leave uh, and uh, they play the game. And, yeah. and, and so that's not everybody, but you do have that small percentage that play the game um, because they know that they've got that to fall back on. And, and, and Carrie, I'll tell you something in Virgin Life talked about this, you know, why don't we have officers um, take psychological tests annually or every five years? Well, you're not going to get that past the unions. That's just not going to happen. Um, what what happens if you find out and, and cities are a little bit hesitant to do this because what happens if you find out someone does have PTSD? Now are they going to take a medical retirement? I mean, so it's, well, it's it, obstacles that, you know, that prevent, you know, that, that type of regular um, analysis or whatever. Yeah, well, I want to ask this question since you bring that up because that was – uh, one of the comments in, in one of the, the pieces I played earlier, where the uh, legislator was was proposing that officers have an annual checkup. Uh, so, you know, I know here in Minnesota at, at the agency I'm at, um, there is a, uh, a wellness check. They call it the head from the neck or some type of wellness check. What's your opinion on agencies requiring that in, in making it um, a mandatory, not voluntarily, but mandatory, uh, uh, where uh, this is something that that is required just as long as well as with any other training? Because, you know, when, I don't think this is something that any police departments in, in Oklahoma currently is doing where they are requiring a wellness check, uh, an annual wellness check. That, that is definitely a touchy subject. And, 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 you know, for, for any number of reasons. Um, and so there's, there's a number of different things that you have to look at in that is, you know, what benefit are you going to, to look for? What are you looking for? What's the standard? Who's going to make the decision? whether this officer can stay or go and and so there's a lot of things that have to happen in order to say okay here's the standard but we're talking about the human mind and the human brain it it it's not it doesn't go you know it, it's not symmetric sometimes and so you just can't say okay you're at this level you can't do anything else it's not like doing a pt test you know if yeah. you can't run the two mile in a certain time you can't go any further so there, it's very subjective and so, you know, I'm more interested in those first line leaders who are look who are well trained in what to look for and who are bonding and bonded with their troops and saying, OK, I know there's something wrong here. I can't articulate it yet, but I've got enough where I can say, OK, let's sit down and talk. I'm more interested in making sure those frontline leaders <clears throat> have that training and are talking to their people on a regular basis to say, hey, we've got to do something with this. Yeah. Well, hey, it, it just to <clears throat> say if I'm a citizen and and say, you know, just like with the, the, the video we just saw where the officer used a, you know, she just loses her, her 
her temper and, you know, and she uses racial slurs. Uh, and Tony Hollis uh, it, like, uh, has a comment that uh, the racial slur is who the lady cop is, her character. This is kind of, of a character. Character is like the, the tongue. It can't be tamed. So let's say somebody see that and say, well, hey, would something like that have came out doing some type of wellness, you know, uh, annual wellness uh, check uh, where somebody, you know, conducting that would have said, um, hey, you know, there's something that, that we've noticed during this interview uh, and, and it's disclosed to, 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 the, to the chief or to somebody in the command staff. Does that, because if something like that is, is caught and, and an officer is not open and, and is willing to acknowledge that they have some, some type of uh, mental issues going on, what that potentially could have been uh, prevented. Okay. Okay, let me let me say this, Kerry. Uh, I'm gonna say this real quick. So, do you know do you know who the most uh, uh, can be the most effective peer support uh, resources in the law enforcement? Who's that? Inside the police department. Yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead, go ahead. I believe. Academy staff, yeah, field training officers, and sergeants. I truly believe they can be the and, and the reason why we have what's called early intervention programs. That is probably one of the most underused resources in law enforcement because you have supervisors who are afraid to really kind of dig down to see what's going on. There, there are uh, there are certain flags. You know, if someone's used uh, amount of force in a certain period of time, if someone's been in a car pursuit, if people are are utilizing leave more than you know, that's the opportunity for that supervisor to bring that person mm -hmm. in and talk to them. That's where you find out what's really going on. We don't utilize that program. It's there. We spend, I think, police departments spend thousands of dollars on utilizing and setting up that program, but nobody uses it effectively. So I, I think the, I think the resources are there, but I think field training off the training staff, field training officers, and first line supervisors uh, are the are the can be the most uh, the best peer support for officers. And it, and it comes down to uh, two words, active listening. And so, yeah. so many times, I mean, we train on active listening and, and, and I see it used more and more and more. And I think we're getting better. We're not there yet. I mean, we got a long way to go, but we're getting better in active listening. We train officers in that. And uh, active listening is a big part of CIT. And, uh, you know, I find uh, CIT officers after they go through, they say, hey, I've, I've, I've been able to communicate better with not only my peers, but my family, my kids, uh, other people. And so, it, you know, the ability to listen and not just hear the words, but to listen to what they're saying and, and understand that, hey, I may not have the answer, but I know someone who does. And that, that's what we need. It's not the fact that we need every first-line supervisor to have the answer. They don't, but they do know somebody who might. And so let's get that person to someone who can. And so that that's that's the big key right there is to understanding your people and the, having that open line of communication. Yeah, I want to just remind everybody who's just now tuning into the podcast show, tonight's topic is mental illness in our communities and policing. And, uh, you know, I want to ask you this question. You know, earlier we talked about this before we came on, on air um, about having embedded social workers within a dispatch center. Uh, how important is, is it to you? Do you think dispatchers need to also be trained on in crisis intervention training? It's vital. 
it's vital. And one thing that uh, uh, when when I worked for Chief Humphrey that he allowed was our communications officers to go through the 40-hour CIT training with officers. And so uh, when, when I left Norman, half of the communications force had been trained in the 40-hour CIT school. And so the idea is when someone calls 911, there's a high likelihood that the person answering the phone is trained in CIT and they're communicating on the radio to the officer trained in CIT. We're already starting <clears throat> de-escalation on the phone. We're already starting to understand. And so then you, you're talking the same language. But with the embedding, and I know we talked about in Minnesota, they're doing that a lot. I know in Oklahoma they've made uh, proposals, uh, particularly some trial proposals with Oklahoma City, Oklahoma County. Uh, but with the advent of 988 and the, the relationship between 988 and 911, they're not mutually exclusive. They talk to each other. So if someone calls 911 and it's clearly not a call that an officer needs to go on, that CIT-trained uh, communications officer can say, I'm going to forward you to the therapist and these folks at 988 who are going to help you. Consequently, when that trained dispatcher with 988 hits his call and goes, there's a weapon involved. I need an officer there. They're going to send it to 911. And so you have that relationship going back and forth <clears throat> with officers in the field. In Oklahoma, every officer has access to an iPad that will put him in touch by FaceTime with a licensed therapist. And so we can get, we can bring that therapist to the field and it becomes a force multiplier to where you don't have to have that therapist everywhere. You just have to have that iPad everywhere or the however many, I think we've got in Oklahoma over 3000 iPads out right now across the state. And so those are linked to the community mental health centers. And there's one in Norman and those mobile crisis teams are answering those calls. And so they, they go, they sometimes they go out with officers. Sometimes they ask for officers to go with them. And so it, it's becoming more of a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Well, hey guys, we're coming up, coming up on the last few minutes of the podcast show. And, I mean, we definitely appreciate you taking your time to come on and, and talk about this uh, really important topic, because as you know, you know, when there is uh, some type of use of force uh, involving law enforcement and in, in someone with mental health illness, it attracts a lot of attention. And, and, and we've seen where officers haven't done a good job of de-escalating the situation. We've seen where they have utilized that training to, to de-escalate the situation. Yeah, and, and we're, we're getting better. We're getting better. We understand we've got a ways to go, but we are getting better. And, and I'm proud of the direction that our profession is taking and, uh, and, and, and the fact that we're talking about it. Chiefs, yeah. you remember 30 years ago, we didn't talk about this. No, we didn't. And you look back, man, I can think of officers that um, we lost, not, ne not necessarily in death, but we lost them. Uh, along the way based on the fact that there was no out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, everybody, I want to remind you that, uh, you know, you can uh, share and like this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, you know, our episodes are, are on our Facebook page. They're on our uh, YouTube channel. Uh, you can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Google Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, wherever you uh, subscribe to a podcast, uh, subscribe to You and the Law Podcast Show and, and like and share. And go to our Facebook page and like it and, and share it with your friends. But, but we, we definitely thank you for uh, coming on tonight, and hopefully we can get you back on here pretty soon. Gentlemen, thank you. Chiefs, good to see you again. You and, too, uh, and, and don't share what I just typed Virgil with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys have a good night. Take All right, care. thanks. Bye-bye.